Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 87. This episode is with the creator of Anatomy in Motion and the Flow Motion model, um, and also author of the book What the Foot, Gary Ward. So if you haven't seen Gary's work already, go and check him out. Um, he's on Instagram and um, I know he put some work out through his website as well. So search his name, Gary Ward, on Instagram or Anatomy in Motion and you'll find his work. Um, he came on to talk about players being injury prone, whether that is something that we need to consider or whether injury prone is a bit of a myth and there's, there's ways and means around it. We talked about correcting dysfunction um, we also spoke about the importance of the big toe and then we got Gary's thoughts on barefoot training as well and there's, there's loads of information in this one all based around the foot and the importance of the foot um, so I hope you take plenty from it. He also gave loads of practical tips that both players and coaches can take and put into your preparation as well so if your coach is listening there's there's some practical tips you can take away and put in with your players. If any players are listening, he spoke about taking um, taking control of or ownership of your body and putting some of these self care um, treatments and movements into your routine as well to look after what are your tools essentially your feet. So loads of information in this one. I really enjoyed this episode. I think Gary's great to talk to and he's he's a fountain of knowledge and. Um, we're definitely going to line up a part two at some point as well because there's loads of stuff that we said we were going to cover and didn't quite get to so it'd be great to hear from you as well let us know your takeaways as usual Um, there was plenty from me but it'd be great to hear what you guys took away from this one and please share the show like usual please share it with as many people as possible and make sure you subscribe to the show as well on either itunes or spotify or wherever you listen it to uh, listen to the podcast This one will also be going up on YouTube as well, so go and check out the video version on YouTube um, if you'd rather watch the podcast. So enjoy the episode. Like I said, it was great to speak to Gary. Big thank you to him for coming on. And here is the episode with Gary Ward. Welcome back to another episode of the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 87. I'm delighted today to be joined by Gary Ward, the creator of Anatomy in Motion, easy for me to say and the flow motion model, and also the author of the book, What the Foot. So, Gary, thank you very much for coming on. Thanks so much, Ben, for having me. Looking forward to this. I am as well. This has been one I've been uh, thoroughly looking forward to. I think there's loads of ways we can go with this episode. But I've just mentioned there, Gary, your company, but also your some of your previous work in terms of the, the book. But you just want to take us back and, and take us through your journey so far okay um that uh yes absolutely my uh journey is is actually quite quite well explained on many podcasts um <laughs> so um i'll keep i'll keep that kind of brief because i know uh, there's probably other things that we can do but I, I basically um fell into anatomy through ski boot fitting um and the ski boot fitting side of things was was quite an unbelievable shift in in my in my life because I spoke languages. Which I ended up in the Alps, but I loved skiing, and I was skiing because of um, um, I had to stop playing football, not not of any significant level, but because of uh, continuous ankle sprains. And ankle sprains 
started sorting themselves out, putting them in ski boots and just doing something completely different. But the uh, the ski boot story over three days, um, I had uh, two two guys and one company come in and they showed us how to build orthotics. They introduced us to the foot. They uh, showed me a foot skeleton. They told me what the bones were called and they told me how to look at the shape um, and what to do with it if it's in a ski boot. So in a ski boot, if the if if the foot's collapsed, you'll feel it on the inside of the foot. You'll feel the little toe push out into the corner of the boot you'll um you'll if you have the boot size wrong you'll feel the top of the foot move into the first part of the ski boot and um and and just all these little enjoyable things I could pick up on um and I'm I liked to be good at what I do so people would come in and I would and they would say it hurts here here and here and I would go well that's because your foot's in this position and then we'd so we'd adjust it by making an orthotic what we called an insole and um all of a sudden, people's uh, feet were comfortable, but then they would instantly report um, one of two things. That their performance on the day skiing was better than normal. So the instructor would be like, you know, what have you, what have you done today? You're skiing so much better. Like, oh, I've just had my insoles done. Um, and the other one was people would come in and say, I didn't have back pain today. Okay, no back pain. All we did was, you know, move that bone in your foot or I didn't even move a bone in a foot back then. And we just organized an, in, an insole and the foot sits a bit differently, but obviously took pressure off the back. Um, and this was a huge kind of layer of inquisition. So it kickstarted my desire to look more into anatomy because I just knew, I just knew um, the 33 joints in the foot, the 26 bones. Uh, but ironically at the time, I didn't realize that I knew that when nobody else seemed to. <laughs> so the, uh, as I then went and did my uh, personal training program um, and a three months course, I, I, I argued with myself about whether I should go back to uni. I didn't really want to go back to uni, so I didn't do the physio route, didn't do the podiatry route or any of those things that were, were appealing at the time. Um, I just went and got a personal training qualification, just thought I'd just start there and I can keep the ski and I keep the ski boot fitting. Um, but eventually the fascination in, in anatomy just became too much and bigger than the skiing even. So, um, um, over the years, I just, I always got people that needed help. I never got somebody asking me to be massive or wanted to train for size, right? That's because you look at me and you go, that's probably makes sense. <laughs> but they definitely, and I always had an affinity with pain and discomfort, loads of injuries, loads of problems, and always working on myself. Um, and um, so that was my client. Um, and of course, I would do courses and go to courses and it would always be these solutions. And so I'd take this solution for that problem and it would never, it, it wouldn't help. So I don't know if that was just, fate like pointing its finger at me i'm sure other people got results i'd go this this doesn't either i'm doing it wrong they're doing it wrong or it doesn't work and, and i just needed to uncover um some things so it just led me on this inquisitive journey all the time and at the same time my own um physical problems were also not being helped by by anybody so it took me um a long time um and, and a big part of what i i do today is is um I'm really passionate about helping people take ownership of their own body in the way in the way that I did, um, because I don't 
know if anyone else can fix a person. So a big part of what I do is to help people is to help people and, and learn about themselves so they can look after themselves. <clears throat> and obviously then we're speaking now to um sports scientists and therapists and SNC coaches and stuff. But these are the people who hold the power to shine the light on people's problems so that they can understand them and then do their exercises or homework and, and obviously get get a nice result at the end. Um, but it all started, it all started with the feet. And so I, I began to and continued to build up. Now I understand foot movement. What does that mean for the rest of the body? And, um, um, and I, again, I, I've said this before, I always go back to this lady who um, had peroneal pain, lateral lower limb pain. It was definitely peroneus, peroneal. And, um, and I was asking her to do something rotate her body to the left um, as an assessment, I think. And all I could see was her foot just doing this. And I thought, well, that's got to be pulling on that tissue on the outside of, of the leg. If that was in a ski boot, what would I want to do? So um, what, I, what I did was um, I would, as, as an orthotic, if someone's foot's flying off the ground, you might just fill the space here so that the, the foot sits and the rear foot can sit neutral and take the pressure off the back of the leg. So I just shoved a load of yoga mat underneath there and got her to rotate. And she had one of these kind of euphoric light bulb. I had the light bulb. She had the euphoric moment of all her pain disappearing. And I was like, I don't know what, what just happened there, but that was pretty marvelous. So took the, um, this idea of, can I recreate the orthotic idea in, in, um, in human movement and start to map the journey that, that goes up the leg? Um, at the time, obviously, uh, this was 2005, six. <clears throat> um, there was a lot of three-dimensional talk going on, um, a lot of sling systems at the time, which obviously later on has now become kind of anatomy trains and fascial lines. But originally, there were sling systems, longitudinal sling system. I don't know if you remember those, deep, deep longitudinal, lateral. Um, can't remember the names anymore. Um, but... I was starting to see these patterns um, in people's bodies and being able to rate, relate them down to the foot. So just started documenting what, what I was seeing. Um, and eventually the curiosity was big enough to, to start to document the walking, the walking cycle. So there were some people out there at the time who would talk about front leg and back leg gait one leg in front of the other and the, the body would adopt this position. And my curiosity was how, how do we get from being the front leg to that front leg becoming the back leg and then becoming the front leg again and, and ended up unraveling the whole gait cycle. So the flow motion model uh, was what I called it. It was a play on words, flow motion, because we're looking at it slowed down, slow motion, but also how the body flows effortlessly and efficiently through, through the walking cycle. Um, and I didn't, I had no idea at the time that, that it would, it would lead to, uh, an understanding and appreciation of, of this, of this, of the skeletons. It, it basically outlines the skeletons full movement potential if everything is moving at the same time, which is, is quite a big statement to make. But what, what we discovered is that a footstep, if you, I walked people over force plates for 10 years continuously. 
And everybody falls into a bracket of 0.6 to 0.8 seconds for a footstep. Um, and then when you look at the model, you look at when the heel hits the ground to, to when the heel hits the ground again. In fact, from when the heel hits the ground to when the toe leaves the ground, every single joint in your body has gone towards both end directions. So flexion and extension, adduction and abduction, internal and external rotation. Every single joint has gone to both of those end ranges in all three dimensions in 0.6 to 0.8 seconds. So I've always laughed because people go, how do I, you know, what are you looking for in gait? And I'm like, absolutely nothing. You're not going to see it. You're going to see a pelvis like bounce around or lean to the left a little bit. Um, but we're actually, we actually end up with a, a description of every joint's journey through, through that piece and then taking snapshots in there. So when the heel hits the ground, what, what's the whole body shape? When the foot's flat on the ground, what's the whole body shape? Um, when you're towing off, what's the whole body shape? And what, are there any relationships here? And, um, and, and it's, I've got to say, it's been an absolutely incredible journey. So um, with a burning desire to um, get something out there, I was, I'd already started teaching uh, courses, teaching in England, um, a couple of invites around just through natural connections and Facebook and stuff like that. Um <clears throat> But I, had, I needed to write what the foot, and I didn't know I was going to call it that until, until the very end. But um, I love the time. <laughs> I wrote an article called What the Foot, actually. Yeah, it's been time. very effective. <laughs> um, I wrote an article called What the Foot a long time ago, before that, um, from a magazine, Multitracks magazine. There's a throwback. Um, and anyway, they, um, that obviously became the title at the end. But So in the book, it was... I'd, I wanted to help people understand and see what I was seeing just for no other reason, the value that I, that I was getting. And the, the, the case studies that are in the book are a little bit kind of wow. And that's because they were wow. Because when people's pain and discomfort disappears because you do something um, that makes sense with how their bones should articulate and move when they walk and you give them that possibility back and the pressure comes off an area and they feel fantastic you just want to let people know um and then people wanted to know and so then we just had groups of people saying can you teach us a bit so we we taught a little bit and um i needed to give people rules what are the guidelines that i'm doing what's going on in here that i need to help people understand and so we came up with the five rules i say we i, I was very much on my own at the time um <clears throat> i came up with the five rules and the five rules are, are, are that muscles lengthen before they contract so when you're walking, um, when you're walking, your muscles will never shorten to move a joint first. They'll always lengthen. If you fall forward as a skeleton, then tissue will open and, and lengthen. Um, and so what that actually means is that by the time a muscle actually contracts, it's contracting from a lengthened position. Whereas for most um, of my educated life at that time and even now i think in in a strength and conditioning or a personal training or just a training arena we were most of, of the thing was let's get you contracting from neutral so from neutral to short we'd be contracting tissue but what i realize is when we're walking the contraction happens from long back towards neutral but you can see there's a, there's a real flip there but you can watch it on animals like those people go start googling cats jumping and lions running and and you see that it's always the same. Muscle is always lengthening as big joints open and then contracting back. And then through momentum, you don't actually need tissue to contract back to where joints are closed and short again. 
Um, so this whole eccentric thing can really, but I've got a paper here on my desk somewhere um, that is all about how eccentric um, movement is is dangerous and therefore bad. And I always go into, we call it evil. So pronation is evil. We'll talk about that later, I'm sure. Eccentric tissue load is evil. These are white scientific papers. And I go, it can't be evil because that's what we're doing just to walk to the bus stop. We're eccentrically loading tissue all the time. But of course, that when you, if tissue tends to get injured, if you overload it, and eccentrically is when it's lengthening and contra- so that I think that's when um I don't know what I can't remember what the the specifics were but um, I mean a lot of science papers they they kind of just this is for the sports scientists but they kind of stop short you got a little bit of something people run with it I'm sure the scientist who came up with the idea is kind of pulling his hair out going that wasn't exactly what I meant um we're doing little bits at a time trying to build forward um and so the model itself has also um ruffled a few feathers in terms of um, what our scientific opinions are you kind of go well we can dismiss that a little bit because this is what it would naturally do in gait and we have a problem is if there's what it would naturally do when we're walking is what we're trying to stop it doing in our training then we have a huge dichotomy there immediately where, whereby all of a sudden but you're training that out of me to make me do this and then we wonder why that leads on to um, people ending up in kind of discomfort. So the classics, uh, also in What the Foot, I'm getting a bit sidetracked, so I was going to tell you about the five laws, but in the What the Foot, I preempt all of that with 10 rants. Um, and so the whole knee over toe, um, knees pushing out, all of that stuff, uh, static stretching. You don't see static stretching in gait. You don't see static movements or moments in gait. You don't see the knees push out uh, when, they're, when they're bending to keep a supinated foot in, in gait. So all these things that we've set up, I think we've set them up as protective mechanisms to help people stay safe in these large environments. But, and, and, and the irony is that when we go out on the football pitches, we're not going to be able to keep our knee there. We aren't going to be able to keep our arches high. And of course, if you keep arches high all the time, all you've got is that tissue, then all of a sudden has nothing to do. Um, and so real movement, what I discovered also through the gait cycle is that real movement is about an exchange of movement where joints open and close on both sides and tissue lengthens and shortens. So we don't want to embed practices where, it, where we just stay short. And very quickly, you can go to a squat. You go, of course, when I'm squatting, I'm loading all the tissue in the back and then contracting from that lengthened position to come up. So a squat becomes more functional than, than um, trying to activate someone's glute by lying them on the front and having them just extend, extend that hip. So there's, there's, obviously there's good stuff and there's, there's stuff that can be built on and improved upon. Um, getting um, into looking at gait really helped to understand the closed chain aspect of, of our anatomy versus the... Um, what I'd say previously, I think a lot of the information that was being taught over however many years is coming from an open chain perspective. So just laying on the couch. So you can lay on the couch and lift your leg up, flex your hip, and there's, you don't have to do anything else. Um, you might posterior tilt the pelvis, um, bring the lumbar spine towards the bed, etc. But when you if you flex your hip when you're stood up, there is a whole chain of events that runs down the leg from the hip flexing to the knee flexing to the ankle flexing to the foot pronating uh, unless you put a conscious twist in and it will and you push the knee out and then it supinates but either way you've got 
you've got 36 joints kicking in immediately whereas laying on the couch it's one so would you rather study the impact of one and work on one or would you rather appreciate the whole of the whole uh, which is to, is to get them all and so um the model uh, which is effectively the ones what we teach is um five phases of movement on the ground so strike phase suspension phase which is when the strike phase initial contact suspension phase is when the um the foot is on the ground um the loading phase sorry <laughs> then i have transition phase which is what they call uh, mid stance um shift phase is where we take our weight from our left foot towards our right foot um, but they would categorize that as like early heel rise and then propulsion phase we might call toe off although it's not specifically it's just a moment before when the metatarsal head is still on the ground um, and then you have a swing phase early swing phase late swing phase and then re-engage with the ground again um, and it's through looking all of those where you start to see all of the all of the vertebrae will open and close, flex and extend, they'll side bend left and right, or rotate left and right, all in a, sing, in a single footstep. So that's every possible movement in your spine, a single footstep. Um, in a roundabout way, that brings us back to law number two, which is joints act and muscles react. Um, and so it ties in super close to the eccentric tissue load. But if we get into um, the if we get into the idea that these joints are moving first. They're the joints that are pushing into tissue, which is encouraging tissue to open and lengthen, um, and then creating a demand from the brain to contract that tissue to protect the, the joints as they kind of move further and further away from their rest position and contract them back towards it. You will start to see that happening through the walking cycle. So we're, we're basically living on the edge. We're forever moving our joints to compromised positions and relying on our tissue to bring them back. Um, and then we'll do it on the other side. Um, and I kind of like that idea of living on the edge because, you know, you, you're on the verge of anything could happen all the time. But the worse, the, 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 the more centered we are, the more aligned we are. So we start to match normal language. We want alignment to be safe. The more aligned we are, the, the, the easier it is to do both sides of movement. If I have, um, um, have a tendency to lean towards one side so that all my joints are stacked on one side, and this could be an unconscious decision because I damaged, I sprained an ankle when I was 13 years old and I realized that I can keep the pressure off that ankle by standing on my, on my left leg. 20 years later, 20 years of being on my left leg, I'm, I'm, I'm all lopsided to one, one side. I'm actually talking about myself. Um, <laughs> and... Um, what's happened is that I've got kind of set into a posture. So I'm not centered anymore. I'm imbalanced. I've got poor posture. I'm one side dominant. And it means that I favor one side and it means that I cannot access the other side. And what we start to say is you've actually, in order to achieve both sides, you've only got 0.6 to 0.8 seconds in that single footstep. So if I'm already left, I'm going to find it hard to go right. If my pelvis is rotated left, I'm going to find it hard to rotate it right. If my pelvis is tipped forward, I'm going to find it hard to posterior tilt. If my foot's flat, I'm not going to have the time to supinate it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Um, and so can we use the gait phases, the gait model, to be able to say, well, when does that pelvis rotate right that I can't do? When does that pelvis posterior tilt that you can't do? And what's happening in every other joint above and below that will help you to access that? And that's when you start to put them in the positions and you'll see their injury, well, you don't, you don't put that right leg forward anymore. 
you're not happy on that right leg. Your foot doesn't move on that right leg. Have you ever done anything to your right leg? Oh, yeah, I damaged that ankle when I was 13. Yeah, okay, right. well, if we work on that ankle? And, you, and it's when, that's when you kind of go, the person comes in, left ankle pain, left knee pain, left hip pain, it's getting worse. They, they're running out of ideas. I think I should do surgery. What do you think? And I'm looking at the right ankle. And they go, it's the left side. Okay, I know. <laughs> but, but actually, this right side is, has had some trauma. So what if we work with that? What if we're actually able to help you have confidence on your right leg, move those bones again, and then start? they start to use their right side better, and they start to take the pressure off the left side. And, of course, you start to find out that the left side is just overworked and underpaid um, and, and has led to the, all of this uh, tr- uh, trouble. Um, so the other three rules, just uh, the, that you're the, – the third rule is that you're, everything orbits around center. And so if it, that's that idea. If everything's too far left, it's never going to get right. And, we, and, and the more we can give the brain the opportunity to experience both sides of movement, and I'm not – but not in an isolated way, in a whole integrated way. And, and that's really about saying, can you be equally on your left leg and your right leg with every step you take? Um, then you, that's when the body can start to learn balance. Um, it's a little bit different from, um, you know, stretching both sides out at the end of a session or making sure that strength and length are, are incorporated around a rotator cuff or something. It's, it's more about understanding what that rotator cuff's role is in the context of everything. And that's what I think the, the model really gives us. Um, the brain is hardwired to know where that center point is that's rule five so if you give it the tools that it needs it simply seems to find its way towards whether it's quick or long it's working going to work back towards that centered position um and then i've left rule four till the end because that's the um perceived uh, your your i can't remember it your posture your current postures um are your uh, what is law for? Basically, it's the way you hold yourself. So your resting posture and your movement habits dictate your performance and your pen- potential. Mm. So whereas we, if you know, I've got a sore knee, and we'll look at the knee and we'll see if we can flex it. We'll see if we can extend it. What we really need to do is look at the context of everything to see what pressure is showing up on on the knee. And then um, there is a big shout out in the world, which is you know, don't uh, to use Perry Nicholson's phrase, stop chasing pain. Don't chase pain. So if your knee hurts, doesn't mean we have to work on the knee. Doesn't mean we have to treat the knee. We have to we have to operate on the knee. We mean to understand the knee's situation um, in the context of their everything, so that we can better understand it. And, and I think that's what the model what the model really brings. I think it's really fascinating, isn't it? Because there's, there's two sort of sides to it. It's fascinating in the fact that you can focus on a different part of the body and have such an impact on a different area but at the same time when you're talking about movement and especially how we move on a pitch it makes sense doesn't it like like you say lying prone on your front and lifting your leg up we like to think we're not going to be doing that too much on a pitch whereas we are going to be moving jumping sprinting changing direction all the different things that we're going to be doing so have to be a fluidity doesn't it yeah, exactly, and and we see we see play that with players, don't we? To use coach analogy, players move well and and don't move so um, so well, and that whole thing could be a, a completely different debate in terms of that language. But one thing I wanted yeah, to go on to now, Gary, and get your input on is, um, and again, a very very common phrase used within football or possibly sport 
is a player being injury prone. So mm. is that, are players injury prone or does it tie back into exactly what you just talked about there? Uh, it, well, it will tie back in. Um, I, I, with an injury prone player, let's say, so an injury prone player is somebody who just gets hurt a lot and it doesn't have to be the same part of the body. So that means somebody like Brian Robson used to dislocate his shoulders all the time. Um, other players, they'll, they'll, you'll find that it's a hamstring, it's an ankle. It's a, you can go on YouTube, Google a player, and you'll see little arrows of all, all their in- injuries, right? Which is um, which is just a shame. But I think that there's four areas of um, that I think about when I'm actually in treatment with somebody, um, and I'm looking back at their history timeline, um, and. I look at the earliest injury. I look at um, the most impactful injury. I look at the injuries that have been untreated, which nearly everyone's got. Footballers less so because everything gets treated. But you know, the, the, those. I sprained my ankle, and um, within six days, I was running on it again. So that that's untreated or unconsidered. That's the fourth one, um, and so. People are injury prone, not just footballers. But once you have, if you've had an early trauma, and I don't mean early two years old, it could just be your first one. You could have just gone through life completely happy, and then all of a sudden, bang, ankle's gone. So that again, ankle, must look at my ankle. Uh, <laughs> um, all of a sudden, if, if the... Uh, I mean, an ankle is huge. If you, when you um, invert an ankle, you're moving the calcaneus, you're moving the talus, you're, you're damaging ligamentous tissue, you're moving the fibula. Um, and most of the time, it, it will be strapped up and left to heal, let the bruising go. Start to do some gentle, uh, you know, write your name. Um, then we might get up to being on a wobble board etc this and then we're and we're looking at strengthening but unfortunately strengthening and writing your name is not dealing directly with the anatomical structure which can believe it or not be dealt with where you can actually teach a fibula and a talus and a calcaneus and a forefoot all to articulate and move better again so that they no longer have um, an ankle that is remains in a sprained position i'll be working with ankles um, that have been sprained And there's, you know, they still lack fibula glide after 15 years. And that, that shouldn't be the case. It should be being dealt with straight away. Um, we had a, a PITFL damage this season where immediately the ankle was, the, the talus was in the wrong position and we, we put it all back together to, to, to encourage the healing process like really quickly. There's, there, I, I just think there's, whereas that, you know, that the, the alternative to that was to leave it for six weeks. Six weeks is a huge time to leave something out of position. Um, and I think we can do a lot better on that front. Um, what they reckon is that if you tape your two fingers together for a couple of hours, your brain starts to eliminate the idea that you've got two fingers. So the longer you're booted, plastered, strapped, not moving something, 
the brain will start to eliminate the idea that that's even a possible movement. And so what we end up coming up with all of the time, two things. One is we look for what's missing. We look for the movements that you stopped doing, which could be out of fear of movement, instructional to not move, just complete abandonment. Um, There's all those phrases, kinesiophobia and stuff like that. Um, and the other thing is that the, the the player, the person, the injured, if they can't use those movements, they have to find others to make up for it. And that's the definition of the word compensate. If I lose something, I am compensated for it somewhere in another part, in this case, of my anatomy. So the model, again, it highlights, um, let's just take one moment in time. So when the foot's flat on the ground, the whole body's stacked up on top of it. And, and as I said, we've got all of the joints in, in play. So all of the foot, the ankle, the knee, the hip, the pelvis, the lumbar spine, thoracic spine, shoulder girdle, cervical spine, everything can be, de- you can determine where everything should be at that moment in time for an optimal movement where all bones are moving equally. In the absence of equal, so I can't move one, I start to move something else more to compensate for it. And so in, in What the Foot, I actually talked about the, 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 body, you always, the body always works at 100%. So you, don't, you can't take anything away from it or add to it. So if I lose an ankle for a crude way of looking at it, I'm going to have to use my knee more, my hip more, a rotation more. I will do something more. And it's in those more places where you tend to find people have problems. So that earliest injury, if it's not dealt with and they're back on the pitch and they're running and they're playing hard, all of a sudden they're playing hard using more stuff elsewhere, which may end up being the next area, which if they then, that gets quietened down, or you start to train that in a way where it's not specifically relevant. Now you've got the ankles taken out, the lumbar spine's taken out, and then it's a shoulder. And then you start getting all the little pictures all all around. So injury prone is very, very interesting. Um, You know, I always, always want to go back and say, what was what happened first? What was the first thing? Um, and, and of course, a lot of injury-prone players sadly end up on the in on the surgical table, um, and those then sometimes the surgeries need dealing with as well. A lot of people's surgeries will. Um, I'm not saying that they didn't need a surgery, but the you 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 often find that. Uh, if I jump out of football briefly, uh, somebody who had a hip replacement, you often find that someone had the hip replacement, but the structure that their body holds unconsciously when they walk is still being held post replacement. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. So now you can go out, you can see why you probably needed your hip replacement. It feels good now, but we shouldn't leave you there mm. uh, because you're, you're now at the mercy of your old unconscious walking habit or movement habit. So if we can start to deal with that, um, then it will take, take the pressure off the other areas again. Um, and, and, and it's really, it's a case of that, is that this compensation thing is what, what we're doing. And, and when you're working at a really high level, a really hard level um, of intensity, training every day, playing hard a couple of times a week, then you are going to end up using stuff in the absence of being able to use others. It seems weird saying, you know, running not using your ankle but you see it a lot you see it a lot and you see it on force plates and um it can be it can all be picked up and monitored yeah
I hope you enjoyed the first part of the podcast with Gary. There's loads of takeaways in this one. I just wanted to give a quick update on our online community. So we do have the video form of the podcast, episode 82 with Jack Sharkey, episode 83 with Russ Hitchin and Richard Evans, episode 84 with Nathan Griffith, and episode 85 with Colin Colin Lewin. All the video versions are available now on our um, online community. And I was actually having a look back through the community just this morning uh, and watching, re-watching some of the webinars on there and some great, great webinars. Some of the recent ones I've mentioned in, in recent episodes, Dr. Will Abbott's done one recently, Hamish Munro. But looking back at some of the older webinars, there's some great um, resources on there. So this morning I watched the uh, rewatched the the webinar by Evie Casagrande on youth athletic development or youth athletic training. Really, really good webinar by Evie. And if you've seen her work before, you'll know that it's always quality. And then also Lewis Colden, Academy Sports Scientist at West Ham, um, has done a webinar for us on S&C for goalkeepers. And there's loads and loads of great information in that one as well. So if you are I know there's some people that like to specialise and we spoke to a few people recently specialising in working with goalkeepers, whether it's privately or with a club. Um, that's definitely one to go and check out. So if you haven't done so already, you can claim a free month on the community. Just go to www.footballfitfed.com click the community tab at the top and then sign up there. That'll give you a free month to check out all the resources and see what the community is about. After that, if you want to stay a member, it is only £4.99 per month and you'll get all access to all the future webinars that are going on, including one that is going on next week, um, which I'll give you more information about in next week's podcast and um, all future network meeting presentations as well when our network meetings are able to get back up and running. So go and check it out. Sign up, footballfitfed.com, click the community tab, sign up there, get your free month and get involved. Here is the second part of the podcast with Gary Ward. Yeah, that's it's definitely just um, covering up an issue, I suppose, isn't it? It's like in a really simplified manner of having a headache and taking a pill to cover up the headache without yeah. working out why you've got the headache in the first place. Yeah. So uh, yeah. that for me, yeah. that's like the simplified version of it. But I think the surgery side of things is fascinating because with, with football now, it's so accessible, especially for clubs at the top end. You could get injured on a Friday night and you could essentially be in, if you need, if they think you need it, you could be in surgery either that night or the Saturday morning. It's so fast. Yeah. Yeah. But is it needed? I mean, that, that's the question that I've got for you. Like, a lot of the time, do you think it's needed or are there ways and means around it? Well, I think, um, you know, first of all, we should be grateful that, that the possibility is there and that the skill set of those guys is off the chart. Um, and I would, I do sometimes wonder if if things could have been done sooner in the process to to take the pressure off something before it got to that stage, um, especially if it's um, uh, what's the word, especially if it's not not impacted do you know what i mean what's the word it's just happened innocuously so i'm i'm just when i'm running i just i just feel it when i'm running i've not had a it's not like a, a, i took a huge tackle and everything's just gone to bits and that needs putting back together um but like something yeah a hamstring goes under no under no pressure it's like that that shouldn't be happening um, it doesn't i don't care what intensity you're working at you you you're able to see that that hamstring is doing way way too much 
Um, and hamstrings can be tied into feet really, really quickly. I mean, that's a no-brainer comment, hopefully. Um, hamstring attaching down onto the lower limb itself beyond below the knee, um, and then that at the mercy of rear foot movement and forefoot movement. Um, and I don't think I've actually met a footballer who could supinate his foot in what I would define as a supinating foot. Um, and so that means that most of them are, the movement range in their feet is small. Um, and they spend a lot of time on these and they put them in the football boots. And um, and it would I think it would be a, a lovely thing for them to be able to do is to actually have more movement in their feet. And, it, and it's really easily done. Uh, we have a program called Wake Your Feet Up, which basically we send... We send it out, people come in and they, they buy it and it's online and we take them through a two to three hour program of teaching them how to use our wedges to move all the bones in their feet and, and the, the knock-on effect of that in their bodies and then life is, is enormous. Um, and, and if footballers could be doing that, 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 that would be huge. It would, it would take so much stress off their hamstrings and that's just, that's just <laughs> I'll, I'll just be sat in the garden having a cup of tea while they do that, <laughs> following my video. <laughs> For fifteen pound, which is not even, not even a drop. It's a drop in the ocean. So hopefully some of them will pick up on that. But but it's that idea. There's definitely, definitely, definitely going to be so much more that can be done that isn't being done before you get to that decision. Um, now, obviously, if you're in season um, and something needs to happen now, a la Harry Kane, so we can make the Euros or the end of the season, etc. Those decisions happen happen like that. Um, and <clears throat> but you, you would still you would still want to go back and look at you know the history and the ankle sprains the, and and start to work there in order to make sense of the bigger picture. Um, and the, the hard part about that is the transition towards learning this way of looking at, at the body, I suppose, rather than um, just being able to go and do it on Monday morning. Um, but there's certainly there's definitely capacity in football to do that with, with players I would say for sure given the amount of time that they do spend already if it was spent um, if it was spent in a way that was more considerate of that you might even reduce that amount of time that, that people that people are needing to spend on players yeah there's a lot Which of factors that thing. come into it aren't there in terms, like you just said in terms of rushing your leading goal scorer back and getting them back for key games and things like that and you get it right um, yeah there's yeah exactly there's a lot of money involved in it there's fans that you've got to try and keep happy and all the rest of it but it's just good to to get your point of view on it and and you like to think that they just take that into consideration don't you that surgery isn't the only option but the looking at the picture the big picture as a whole mm. yeah 100 percent. yeah and then what I wanted to move on to, Gary, I remember someone saying to me when I was playing, and I didn't play at a very good level at all, but when I was playing, someone said to me about looking after your tools. And by the tools, they meant your feet. And that was something that went, at that time, went in one ear and went out the other ear and was like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, whatever. And I think that's what a lot of players do, isn't it? Like, like you mentioned before, spending so much time in boots and not looking after an area that essentially is, is so, so foundational to everything that we do. Yeah. So what would yeah. be some, some sort of practical um, tips? And we're talking more to coaches, but indirectly to players here as well. Practical things that we can put into our week, into our day, that will help look after this really important area of our body. Um, I, think I kind of already said it. For, so for me, 
Um, I, I just thinking as you were talking. I don't think I've ever seen a footballer whose nails weren't black and about to fall off. Right? <laughs> Whenever I see them, um, some disgusting feet when you look around the changing room. In there, <laughs> <laughs> it takes uh, someone like I love them. I think they're fantastic rather than disgusting. But that's probably why I do what I do. Um, there's a again. There's a, there's a lot of information out there. I I, I genuinely a believer that people do things if they see value in it um, and they, they don't do things. So most people's biggest complaint on criticism of, um, um, this is not a football thing, um, of their patients is that they didn't do the homework. And I would say, if, if your patient's coming to you and going, I didn't do my homework this week, then what you need to recognise is that they're not the problem. <laughs> the problem is they didn't see any value in what you're giving them. And then if they don't see the value in it, then there's no point asking them to do it again because they still won't do it again. Um, And the reason they don't feel value is because they didn't actually feel benefit. So a lot of people will, they'll get, they'll do this. I'm all happy. I'm having my treatment. You've shown me that I need to do this. I'm I'm happy to go and do that. Two days later, I've got the same problem. I'm going to come and see you in a week. I'm going to tell you I didn't do my exercises because it still hurts. And then the, 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 the practitioner then spins on and goes, well, you should have, you know, you should have been doing your homework. And they come to me and they go, I'm so annoyed because nobody ever does the homework. I go, they always do my homework. <laughs> they always do it. Um, and whether they're doing it correctly or not is a big diff- different conversation because I'm asking them to move their whole body in, in one foul moment. But they've got something. They go, oh, this makes sense. I understand why I need to do it. I understand what I need to do. Um, and I can and I can feel feel benefits. And most people, if they don't feel benefit, are on the phone pretty quick. I, mean, um, I don't. And, and, it, and sometimes it's got worse. And I'm like, you need to come straight back in because something's changed, and we'll just work with that. But I think that's worth uh, considering. And and so the reason I'm saying that is because there's a lot of um, information out there that is foot orientated that people just don't do because well, it hurts or they don't get any value from it. And so the only reason you're going to get value from it is if it makes a difference. And the only reason you're going to know if it makes a difference is if you understand your feet. Because at the moment, they're just this thing, this extension on the end of the leg that kicks a ball and you run around on. (laughs) That's it. Um, You didn't, you don't necessarily, I I never forget, I do say this again uh, occasionally, but a, a, a young personal trainer girl I wonder if she ever hears this because I say it all the time and if she even knows and goes, oh my God. But she said, I asked, how many people, do you know how many bones are in the, are in the foot? And she said, how many joints are in the human foot? I think it was the question. And she said, two. And I said, okay, can you tell me what they are? She said, foot and ankle. And I went, and I, and I just, I was dumbfounded, just like, wow. Okay. Um, but actually, that people—that's all they really know. That's all they've really got. They know there's some toes. They know there's this thing. They don't know if there's one bone, two bones, twenty-six bones, um, and they're not educated around it. So, um, and then I'll stand in a room of uh, forty body workers and say, "Ask, put your hands up if you're confident that you know about feet." And whether it's because they're in my presence or they actually genuinely didn't know. I think three hands up have gone up in 10 years. 
<laughs> the people that I don't know about feet. We just we just don't know about it. And so, how can you get your people engaged in feet if you honestly don't know? And what you're doing is effectively going to YouTube, getting some exercises, rolling your plantar fascia with a lacrosse ball and scrunching towels, um, trying to do a janda short foot exercise, but not knowing really what goes into that exercise and how we can make it happen. And the next part of my conversation is that I want you to be able to have this movement in your feet unconsciously, because if you're going to go and play football, forget football, if you're going to go and walk to the bus, you can't be pronating and supinating your foot with deliberate action. We can't even walk down the road and text at the same time. <laughs> we can't. We, we, and so this, what you've asked is a, a really nice little question, but it's, it's massive. Is can we educate? Let's just every player uh, I don't know, in the Premier League? In the English Football League, in one club, um, on how on how their feet move, how to check it, how to use it, um, and how to move it, and 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 what to do. And so all movement. Um, I I've recently posted if if a lot if you can't get weight through your first metatarsal head, it, it, it means you don't have the access to a foot tripod. That's normally the first thing to do. The first thing we do is to check: Have you got a foot tripod on the ground? It's your first metatarsal, your fifth metatarsal in your heel. Um, and a lot of conversations have, I've seen, I mentioned it on Instagram recently. We've had a few conversations um, recently. And, um, and so people go, I don't have it. So the first thing, the next thing they'll try and do is to push that onto the ground. And as soon as they're pushing it onto the ground, that's a conscious decision. And, and weirdly, we, I don't think we necessarily learn from the conscious action too much or we if we do we go back into that learning model of 1500 reps for a conscious conscious thing but if we will use uh, the wedges like i talked about showing the yoga mat under that lady's foot if you just bring the ground up to that metatarsal and start to do your movements you, you create that unconscious change and um your brain has an experience of the tripod on the ground the foot bones relax and they start to move differently because they've got the permission of having the tripod on the ground. And then all of a sudden that, that can start to resonate movement up, up through the body. Um, and so that, that just that level of education is if I was a footballer and I'd want to get out of bed every day and check if my tripod's down today. And so when I put my foot forward and bend my knee, does, is my foot pronating? Is this bone going in that direction? And I know it might not be for everyone, but the players that I have worked with, that that's that's what they do. That's what that's there going on in the back of their mind, and they'll take these wedges um, and make sure that their feet are moving. But they're also learning through the process that we go through together how their body stacks up on on top of that. And because they start to add so much value to it, then they're, they're they find themselves start to find themselves in a really good understanding of their of their body. And back to taking ownership of their body, that's my key thing. So, um, like I said, the, like the, the, the physios at the club, they're there for firefighting, strength and conditioning, they're there for making sure they're ready for the game. If the player can actually make sure his bits are working and he's, you know, it's, yeah, and it's, actually, it's actually effective. It's been very effective. I think that's a really so the, fascinating 
discussion the unconscious movement because I'm sure there's many, many people out there that will have been through an injury and gone through a stage of rehab where they've done something and they just feel like, oh, this isn't this isn't doing anything for me. I don't feel like I'm getting anywhere. And like you say, and I'm trying to tie this in with my rehab and I'm just making this really selfish now and just tying it in with what, what I've been going through because why not? But um, yeah. there's, there's things that I've done in, in a rehab process where I'm like, I don't really feel like I'm getting anything from this, but really focusing on it and trying to understand everything that's going on. And then simply just being able to move and get around the house and step upstairs and things like that, the progress just seems to have just elevated. So I think that ties in with what, you're saying doesn't it the mm. conscious and unconscious movements yeah yeah once i mean I, I use the word permission quite a lot like can you can you give that part permission to move does that give it permission to heal um and, and also what was achilles you said wasn't it for you yeah so ultimately really like are am i still engaged in the habitual unconscious movement habit that that led to the stresses that were being put on that so even post-surgery and rehab you you might find that you're you are still kind of betrothed to that movement because it's it's the one that feels safest and it has a reason for doing that because of something else that it's been working around Um, and so you might ultimately your ultimate rehab once you're good and strong is is to find the things that that it's moving around so that you can get those moving better so that that no longer has to take the hit, if that makes sense. Um, it's also been a constant, 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 constant over my years of um, educating people um, <clears throat> is that, the, you know, I, I, I'm going to say osteopath, but it could be any, but the osteopath is generally gets quite frustrated when they've got people coming back with the same problem all the time. They've worked really hard, assessed really hard, trained really hard they know everything they need to know and they're making this thing that should make sense to the to the problem but as soon as that person gets up and engages in their closed chain on the ground unconscious movement habits they're just putting that adjustment back in Mm. that makes sense because that that's what we need to actually override is how am i how do i use my body sometimes talk about i with the opinion and it the the body the vehicle that you you kind of I don't know, it wasn't you actually mentioned vehicle, but I and there's I, and I can go, I can force this bone into that place, but it's just going to go, <laughs> that's not going to help. No. <laughs> and so you go for a walk, and it just does its thing, moving around its problems, and you're doing all this stuff that you've been told to do that you think you should do, but it's not actually working. So we, there'd be definitely a layer underneath in that unconscious conversation that, that we. Um, that we can start to tap into and people can start to tap into for themselves because you don't then need to talk about it. You just need to move it. Mm. And so um, I've mentioned wake your feet up um, and I don't, I'm, I don't, I'm not shy of uh, hiding away from selling these things because I've made them really, really cheap and really accessible so that as many as people as possible can actually begin to take ownership of their body because that ticks my values. Um, and so we have wake your feet up, which is the best way that, people can learn the simplest things people can learn to do about their foot anatomy Mm. um as we've to answer your previous question and this question is starting to go into wake your body up which is more an upper body thing uh movement pelvis spine um rib cage skull obviously neck um and what this program is it's it's it it details the integration between your pelvis and your skull all the way up 
um, and it confines and puts limits on your movement so that if you do as you're told, <laughs> if you like, um, and move your body in this way, you'll start to find that um, you're putting movements, just by going through the assessment process even, you're putting movements in that your brain may not have experienced for a long time. So adjustment starts to happen just under the radar. And I think that's the beauty of it. So people aren't, well, they will. Some people have got those kind of brains who go, oh, when I do this, things feel better. And then they try too hard at doing it and it doesn't work. You've got to do it in a nice way that's gentle, I mean, people have said they're really boring, these things. And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm no Joe Wick. I'm not dancing around, getting all excited and putting movement on. Like, he's got, he's brilliant. But um, this is, you, it's concentrated, it's smart, it's small movements, it's specific. Um, and what we don't want, we don't want you to do a side bend to the left when you're only using two vertebrae, right? We want you to side bend to the left and use all of the vertebrae. That's when things make a difference. And if you were to assess 30 footballers in a squad, I guarantee in their side bends, hardly anyone is side bending with all of their vertebrae. And I guarantee that hardly any of them will be in a rested neutral position to begin with. Um, and, and I guarantee that the vast majority of them will be moving around their old injuries as well. So I can't remember what that question was, but... Um, no, I, I, think, I think that this is, um, these conversations are great and it... I think like the, the, the practical stuff that coaches can take away from it, because the reason I asked in terms of practical things that we can put into our um, routine or the way we prepare players is because I try and think about what players would do or what coaches would potentially add into a program. And I don't see it going much further than what you talked about before in terms of rolling the bottom of your feet and doing possibly like a knee to wall movement or something like that. And that's probably pretty much where it starts and stops. I could be speaking out of yeah. turn at some clubs, obviously, but um, that's just a... Are changing, I think. Yeah, sort of. yeah. I just think it's nice, for, but like you said, if, if players can take responsibility, I think that's, that's a massive point um, of all ages, especially down to academy ages. I think that's really important. <laughs> oh, totally, um, yeah. But for coaches, we, 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 you as a therapist, if you're listening and consider yourself a therapist, you are not the healer. I think that's the thing that we really need to, to take away with. I am not the healer. I, I don't take um, ownership of any of anyone's results, really, because, because and even if, I, even if I took the time to uncover what the real problem was and put a real movement into that place and something good happened, it's, it's still because that person somewhere inside connected with it and, and the brain understood the movement recognized that 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 actually works more beneficially than the other one and makes a choice to move towards it because countless times we've done things that haven't worked or have actually regressed somebody slightly and and all of that is just information just keep just keep working keep learning but you're at the mercy of the person's internal decision making factory which is that works for me that doesn't work for me that's better that isn't better um and so it's nice because you as a therapist you a lot and I've, again we've met hundreds um and they'll, and they'll you know struggle with the idea that they might not be good enough if, the, if they're not getting results but again it's not their responsibility it's not your responsibility so you can take the responsibility off yourself and put it onto them uh, but if you're going to do that you have to educate them in in what it is that, that, they, that they need and so um you know you talk about academy players they're about to go on a big journey of um of well they're already on a big journey but in high intensity, high octane injuries, 
Um, and the vast majority at a young age will hand their body over to the club and then they get moved on and they're handing their body over to another club um, and another opinion. And and there's a big part of it, which is where they can actually begin to take ownership of it themselves. And, and it will, and it will it'd be huge for the industry. No, definitely. And I can't remember how many years ago now, but I, I remember watching a video with... Um, I think it might have been someone like Kobe Bryant's strength coach or one of the big basketballers anyway, um, who was talking about the importance of the big toe. And I think you've pretty much, you've gone into this a little bit already, I think, or, or you've gone into it quite a lot. And I think, I know it's going to tie in with what you've previously said, but I don't think it's a common area of the body that we think is is beneficial, is it? It's something that we probably just disregard and we don't really understand it. So could you touch on that and, and the importance of that in terms of performance? Absolutely. Um, your big toe, we can, it ripples all the way up to your neck. I mean, if, that, it's, <laughs> if there's no more importance than that. The, um, it's, the, <clears throat> it's the muscle, the, the flexor hallucis longus on the underneath is the only muscle that wraps around two levers so the ankle and the and the met and the metatarsal head um whereas that makes it uh you know most forget that say <laughs> i may have just muddled that up in my head um but it's the most powerful lever for sure in the in the human body um and that makes the fhl a very powerful muscle um but of course in order to have access to its movement um it needs to be able to do all of the things that it should be able to do. So a uh, big toe generally has four degrees of freedom, plantar flexion, dorsiflexion, or flexion extension. So um, dorsiflexion or coming up, uh, plantar flexion pushing down, um, and the rotation. I don't know why I'm bumbling around with my big toe story today. But um, the way I think and talk about the big toe is – Again, I used the word permission earlier, but a, a plantar flexing toe gives the foot, the whole foot, permission to pronate. And a dorsiflexing toe coming up gives foot, the foot the permission to supinate. So um, if, you, uh, if you lift your big toes up and you find an arch creates, then you, your big toe is probably on, on some kind of accurate um, run. If the one big toe is different to the other, in terms of the ranges that they can achieve, then you're instantly going to get hit into your sagittal plane. So if this toe comes up quite a lot, I will get a really good stride length on the, with the right leg back. And if this one doesn't come up much, I'll get a really weak, not weak is the wrong word, but a short stride length. Stride length. So all of a sudden, this could be right hip flexor getting overloaded from this toe, the left toe not having uh, the range. Um, if you lift your toes up and your um, so let's say your tibia internally rotates, then you know that when you dorsiflex your toe, the supination connection is missing. Uh, if you've stubbed your toe and you push the toe in and it's compressed, then it, it becomes difficult to decompress, which is a requirement for a foot to pronate. So then we start to lose the pronation potential in the foot. So there's, there's so much going on around the big toe. Um, it's actually, it's, it's crazy. And, and it goes, what we've done, it goes all the, all the way back to 1954 when Hicks called it the windlass mechanism. 
Um, and their windlass mechanism just became a two-dimensional model. You lift the toe up, you get an arch in the foot. Um, you, your toes lifted when you when you're swinging your leg forward. It comes down as you bear weight on it, and it comes up again as you as you power off. But it's actually it's much bigger than that. There's a huge three-dimensional knock-on to that, and, and as I said before, it runs all the way up to the neck. So um, if the toes aren't lifting up evenly, that's going to affect pelvic rotation, which is going to affect spinal rotation, which is and it's running up and up and up. So they're very interesting. I had a, a GB rower a um, good number of years ago, um, and she was going in for back surgery. Uh, they want She was out of the boat, and they wanted her to go for surgery. And for whatever reason, I can't remember why now, she came, she came to us, um, and she was like this with one toe. One toe just wouldn't come up, um, and... In the same way as this, this one's up, so this leg came back nice and easily, which meant that she always compressed into that left lumbar side, and that was where they. And so, what we did is we got the toes to be level. Um, so this could be could be distracting it, could be mobilising it, but critically, you're teaching that when it goes up, you're teaching the foot bones to articulate into a supination. When it goes down, you're encouraging it to pronate again. The stride length turns out we had to teach her to not hike on the left and hike a bit more on the right um which is essentially to to be able to get the toe up and supinate on the left foot um and then all the pressure came out out of her out of her low back um and so again if you're looking at a back problem we need to start thinking that we're looking at a whole body problem and then we need to assess the whole body to find where it is but toes yeah the, the big toe essentially is it's it's crucial um and it definitely needs assessing. So it's pretty important. <laughs> um, I don't like to give um, I don't like to give one structure importance over another. I mean, I've seen in inverted commas people held prisoner over a finger break, right? Um, so, um, but it was that the the conversation I was muddling around with is is the the, the fact that it's got these two fulcrums makes it a very powerful lever um don't have that um going on so i was introduced to the big toe as the most important joint in the human body um and that led to the concept that the flex allosis longus must be the most powerful in the human body because of how much it has to 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 deal with but i've kind of dropped those i'll probably keep them here which makes me such a big fan of the big toe but and, and I would never say that the big toe is more important than, you know, if your talus is out of position, maybe that overrides the big toe because the toe then can't do anything. Um, but if you're, if, if a vertebrae is forward in your spine, which has caused uh, a pelvis to anterior tilt, which is going to make it difficult to posterior tilt, which is going to make it difficult to externally rotate your legs, it's going to make it difficult to lift the toes up. So all of these connections, that they are, I, I hope people hear them, um, they're actually really obvious. Uh, connections to make but um if you're just looking at the back problem or the pelvic tilt problem then you you might miss the toe unless you've got a strategy to look at everything no i think that that's great and and tying into that as well i just wanted to get your thoughts on uh barefoot training because this is something that has got more and more popularized in the last few years you see companies making uh footwear that is designed around barefoot and being encouraged to be barefoot as much as possible so is that something that you'd recommend um players to do 
when they're at home, away from the pitch, things like that? Yeah, I'm definitely pro barefoot, definitely. Um, but I'm I'm also not anti shoe, <laughs> which is uh, you know. I, I I think a lot of people they go barefoot and everything else is you know ditched, no shoes. It's like um, I like vegetables, but I wouldn't not eat meat. <laughs> you know, um, so I like to get that in there because uh, uh, do I? I mean, we've been in lockdown, so to put a timestamp on this, been in lockdown for 10 weeks. Um, and, I've, you know, I've been barefoot the whole time. So completely pro barefoot. Um, I'm sure many people have, and I'm sure that might have benefited a lot of people actually um, from uh, not having to put their restricting shoes on. Um, but I think footwear is, is, a, is a different conversation to barefoot. But um with a guy, a distributor for barefoot shoes I'm, that I know, used to, he used to do it. I, I remember saying to him, look, if you walk barefoot over a force platform, you, you get the data. You see where the pressures are. You can see the, the gate line, how it journeys through the foot. Um, and then if you put the barefoot shoe on and walk over the same plate, you can see very similar data. So the barefoot shoe doesn't change the way your foot moves. And so he said, rightly so. So it it does exactly what it says on the tin. Yeah, brilliant. So the barefoot shoe replicates your barefoot movement. So my next question is, is how good is your barefoot movement? Um, And is your barefoot, are the shoes the things that are going to make your bare feet more mobile? And if you go into the barefoot world, is more mobile what we're looking for? Because generally what you'll find is they're trying to make them stronger and rigid to, to be able to tolerate. But if you make it strong and rigid, you're losing the benefit that is brought to a foot by being mobile. So a foot optimal environment is to be a mobile adapter, to adapt to any, any surface in a mobile way, um, and then to transform itself into a rigid lever through the contraction of all the tissues, which is called supination. Um, and so what we don't want is, is, uh, is a rigid foot that's barefoot that you're exercising to strengthen the tissues up and just end up with these gnarly feet. We still want beautifully flowing, freely articulating, unconsciously moving feet. So at that point, if you've got that, that's when I start to lose the, uh, the passion around shoes because now I, my foot is able to dominate the shoe rather than the shoe dominate my foot. And I think that's the argument. A lot of people, they call them uh, like foot coffins, is to put, you're putting your foot in a shoe, but that shoe is dominating your foot due to that foot's lack of awareness and movement potential. Um, And so if we go back to this conversation sounding very, um, I I honestly think I've just repeated myself for for 15 years, (laughs) so we might as well do it in the podcast. But if if you take what wake your feet up, you're going to move your foot bones in a way that inspires all the tissue because joints act, muscles react. If you can teach your feet bones to move, the, the tissue will start to respond. When I sat down to document, based on what I now know about feet, I'm going to sit down in 2008 or nine and look at the foot muscles um, because some are flexors, some are extenders, some are supinators, some are pronators, some are everters. And I was completely blown away at what we thought foot muscles do. They do nothing of the sort. 
absolutely nothing of the sort. They are the vast majority are completely and solely interested in in slowing down pronation and contracting from that lengthened pronated state to formulate a supination. They are nearly all supinators. Peroneus longus, which we know as an evert, is not an everter of the foot. You can't evert the whole foot because there's an oppositional requirement in the closed chain that's required. So um, it's actually a supinator. It's a strong supinator of the foot. So again, if you think that you know what peroneus longus is, and if someone's got a sore peroneus longus and you do what you think you should, but actually what it should do is completely different. What it does do is completely different to what you thought it was. Then you need to change your exercises and your movements to, to deal with that thing. So long-term peroneus longus sufferers, we need to start, we need to do the opposite thing generally. So, um, getting your bones moving, moving the tissue, moving the foot, and then you won't need to worry about your footwear. But I would still advocate being barefoot because you get to your feet get to express themselves fully. I suppose. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Um... The whole idea around that, and you're right. This this period has probably proved it to a lot. That uh, I was just saying yesterday, I think it was uh, the amount of time I spent barefoot, and everyone's joking about not getting changed and putting jeans on and all the rest of it. But we, it's the same with our feet, isn't it? We've probably not put footwear on that we normally wear. And I'm lucky; I don't wear suits and things to work. But when people do, <laughs> you like, are only wearing your t-shirt today. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's why I've gone from here yeah. upwards. <laughs> It's even a crop top. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But no, I think it's right. It ties in perfectly. And um, I think there's so much good information in that, Gary. And I really appreciate you coming on because I, I love the discussions on it. I think there's so much more we could delve into but um, and potentially get a, a part two in the future as well because I think there's, like I said, there's a lot more that we can go into with that. But some of the information there in terms of practically um, applying it for coaches that they could take into their practice straight away. I think there's loads. So I really do appreciate you coming on. And I know you've mentioned it a few times in terms of the, some of the courses and the resources. Where's the? Where can we get hold of those? Uh, so the website is uh, www.findingcenter, spelled the English way, c-e-n-t-r-e.co.uk. Um, and on there, there's a tab for AIM education and you'll see um, wake your feet up, wake your body up. And also what I haven't mentioned is um, our first online course, which we, we patched together um, quite impressively, I have to say, uh, for lockdown because we can't teach at the moment. We don't know when we'll be able to open doors again for that. So we've, we're starting to put all our material online, uh, which will hopefully lead to more knowledgeable intake when we next get to meet students they'll kind of already know quite a lot of stuff which you know great we can probably move further uh, than we ever done before so um that course is called the uh, closed chain biomechanics of the lower limb um, and we'll take you through a journey of a lot of what i've been talking about today from from the big toe all the way up to the pelvis um, and we'll be doing the upper body next um which will complete that journey up so first of all we want to give people a good understanding about the integrated um, movement connections that, that we experience from head to toe um, and then later we'll be able to start to show how that evolves through the through the walking cycles so um, hopefully that's a nice introduction to people who are interested or want to learn more no that's brilliant and I encourage people to go and check it out and in terms of yourself on on social media Gary is there anywhere that the, the guys can follow you yeah uh, so Instagram seems to be the big the big one uh, at 
Gary Ward underscore AIM. We also have an Anatomy in Motion uh, Facebook page, um, which is like a, I don't know they call them anymore, like page, used to call them a fan page. Um, and that, that's it really, pretty much what we do. Um, I don't use Twitter uh, anymore. I was put off that a long time ago. <laughs> awesome. I'll put all the links out so people can follow you easily. But no, I I really appreciate you coming on and um, being so open with your discussions there because I think, that, like I said, there's loads to take away from it and plenty more that we can discuss as well. So we'll stay in touch and hopefully get you on again in the future. Yeah, I'd love that. It's really enjoyable. Thank you very much, Ben. Enjoy. Thanks, Gary. Take care. Bye-bye, mate. Huge thank you to Gary for coming on the podcast. It was great to speak to him. I said to him before we started recording, I've followed his work for a long time now and it's always been someone that I wanted to speak to and um, the podcast has given me that excuse to get in touch with him and have a good chat with him and I think you can tell by the length of the episode that um, it, it was definitely someone that I really enjoyed speaking to and to be honest, time absolutely flew. I checked the watch and then over an hour had gone and it, it felt like literally about 15 minutes. So... And, and we didn't even cover everything that we wanted to cover in the first place either. So I think there's definitely room for a part two. In terms of takeaways, there's, there's loads for me. He spoke about teaching players to treat themselves, um, using things like the tripod test that he talked about with the first metatarsal, fifth metatarsal and the, and the heel. Um, so listen back if, you, if you've not got the test for that. But that was something that stood out for me. When he, when he spoke about players being injury prone, he talked about like the four considerations he makes, the earliest injury they suffered, the most impactful injury, the untreated injury and the unconsidered injury. Um, so that I think there are things that we consider within our can consider within our coaching practice and also when we're working with players that we might see as being injury prone. Um, knowing the value of rehab was something he touched on as well. So, and I think that ties into other aspects, not just rehab, to be honest, that, that we talked, he talks about players understanding the importance of doing certain exercises and I think that crosses over to any sort of preparation, whether it's strength training, nutrition, recovery. If players don't really understand why they're doing something, are they going to do it and are they going to do it consistently? Um, and then we also touched on barefoot training, which I think was really interesting and he used the phrases uh, foot dominating the shoe and the shoe dominating the foot. But I think my biggest takeaways from that were that it's not so much about wearing barefoot shoes and being barefoot it still ties down to how functional your foot is and um, how strong it is how mobile it is and all the things that Gary touched on in the episode it still comes down to that regardless of what you're wearing on your feet whether you're wearing anything or not so I think there was loads of takeaways in this one to be honest and I hope you've taken plenty from it as well um I certainly did and I think there's there's loads of information so please get in touch let us know what you think of the episode um, tag us on Twitter at FootballFitFed and on Instagram at FootballFitFed and if you want to reach out and let us know some feedback just drop us an email mail at FootballFitFed.com but like I say massive thank you to Gary I'll put his links in the podcast notes so you can go and check out his website and I know we're in lockdown at the moment but he does have in-person courses. I know he's got some online courses running, so go and check those out. But when his um, in-person courses return back, when we're allowed to do that, um, he will be posting them on his website as well. So go and check those out. And, and you can also go and follow him on Instagram as well. So a big thank you to Gary for coming on and huge thank you again for you guys for listening and sharing the show. And I'll be back next week with the second podcast of the week.